Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. I haven't been here for a few weeks because of um, the flu, and I'm excited to be here and um, hopefully won't cough. Um, were any of you here last year when I was like very pregnant and post-COVID and had to run in the closet and cough like during communion? It was fun. Um, hopefully it won't happen this year. Um, I just want to say I'm so just overjoyed this morning, I think maybe because I haven't been here for two weeks, but also um, I have this like weird little tin um, that I ha- I've got at the thrift store like eight years ago, a little Christmas tin that says, all hearts come home for Christmas. And as we were singing just now, I was like, I feel like that right now in this room. Like, Matt Kinnamore's here. I didn't know you were going to be here. I'm so happy. I just feel overwhelmed with joy. All the people that I love in this room so much. This feels like Christmas Day to me right now. So, um, so we got to get moody, though, because it's not Christmas. <laughs> One more week. Not kidding. We're talking about exile today. I've been listening to Sufjan Stevens, his Christmas album all week, to get myself in a heart place for today. Um, I actually meant to ask you, Tony, to play the Sufjan song before church. Maybe we can do it at the end. It's called Just, or, Just as Delivered as Death. So, pew it up. <laughs> all right. We are going to be in the prophet Micah today like we have been for the past two Sundays. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Micah says, In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame, I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of daughter Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, the sovereignty of daughter Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pangs have seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go forth from the city and camp in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. And there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I am so thankful for the gift that you've given us in the church calendar. I'm always really grateful for it, but... As this season just continues to somehow creep up on me and get busier and busier as I get older, um, the invitation into a different way is just more welcome to my heart. And so, Lord, would you help us this morning come into that place to see beyond the things that are going on in like the surface levels of our lives in this season, the wrapping of presents and the pageants and the concerts and all of those things, Lord, all of those really good things that we ought to do and enjoy. Can you help us look beyond that into the spiritual place of this season, this last stretch, these last seven days, Lord? Help us to look deeply into your heart. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the way that things are so that we can see what you see, Lord. 
and become like you in that. We long for you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so we've been talking about Advent for the last couple of weeks because it is the season of Advent. And so you guys are probably maybe tired of hearing about it, but we're going to do it for one more day. Um, Advent is a season where we do what I believe is an essentially Christian task. It's one of the things that like compels me towards Christianity, uh, even now and my whole life through, um, is that we hold tensions. I love the idea of like holding one thing in one hand and one in the other and like letting it be uncomfortable and letting it be the reality of where we are. Advent is that season in particular. Advent is like the one that gives us the task of holding the tension. And when we come into church seasons like this, um, we practice whatever that season offers to us in that moment so that we can do it better like the rest of the time. It's not that we don't live in tension the rest of the year, but we practice it a lot right now in the season of Advent so that when we get to these other seasons, we're just a little bit better at it. It comes a little bit more naturally to us. So what tension are we holding specifically in this season? I think many. Um, but one in particular that I will say here at the outset is that we live in what we call the already and the not yet. This idea that Jesus has already come to this world, that we will celebrate in eight days. We're going to celebrate that Jesus was born into this world, that he is God with us, and that there was a specific day in history that Jesus was born. He has a birth date. Um, we're going to celebrate that. We live in that already. That's the already part. Always babies here to remind us that Jesus was also a baby. Um, then we also need to celebrate and think about the fact, live in the tension, that we live in this not yet. Advent is this strange gift to invite us, that invites us into the book of Revelation. Anyone reading the daily office? <laughs> Every year during Advent, it takes you to Revelation, and you're like, I'm just trying to like think about the wise men, and you're taking me to like the dragons, you know? Um, but it's this invitation to remember that just like people used to, before Jesus was born, wait for the Messiah and long for him and, and desire this, this deep thing in them for someone to rescue them, that is also us. That's not separate from how we're living in the reality that we're in. So we get to live in this tension of already and not yet. Tish Harrison Warren says in her Advent book, which we have out there if you want to get it, she says, Advent collapses time. And I love that idea that you and I are living in this sort of like space that just gets like suctioned into one thing during these like three or four precious weeks of Advent that we somehow live 2,000 years ago in patient waiting expectation, and we live that right now. We get to, like, collapse those two moments in history. So how do we think about this space? It's really hard to do, obviously. Um, it's maybe this is the easiest time we have to do it all week is when we're sitting and we're listening to someone talk about the Bible, right? We go home, and it's like it, it exits our minds. So is there something we can hold on to? Is there like a metaphor to help us live creatively into this season? I'm so glad you asked. There is. It's exile, which was a historical event that happened to the people of God. I didn't actually know really what the exile was until I went to seminary, so I will never assume that everyone does know what it is. So that's what we're going to talk about today is this event that happened in the, the people of God. 
There's already, I didn't make this up myself, exile is a really good Advent metaphor. We just sang it earlier today in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? Uh, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears, right? So there's already this tradition of, of living into exile that, that you and I get to live into as a metaphor during this season. It suggests that you and I are exiles, that we're longing for home, longing for the rescuer to come and bring us home. Exile helps us grab onto this tension in a very real way. It gives us something concrete. It helps us to see the reality of the state of the world around us. It helps us to long and hope for what is to come, to prepare the way of the Lord, as the Bible tells us. In the same way that the exiles in Babylon were to prepare the way for this rescue to come, for this thing to happen, you and I are meant to make the paths straight for him. What does that mean? What does it look like? So like, to squeeze all the juice out of this metaphor, we need to visit the exile in the Old Testament. Um, so today is going to be half Old Testament class, half sermon. Um, we're going to read maybe more scripture than has ever been read during a sermon today. Are you ready? We're ready. Firstly, let's talk about the history a little bit, and then we're going to get into the scriptures. So historically what's happening as many of you know, we get, you know, the people of God get into the promised land finally. They work things out very badly over a long period of time. They have these kings, and they're, some of them are wonderful. Most of them are not wonderful. Most of them are terrible. And they eventually get into this place where they have disobeyed God over and over and over and over and over again. And what's happening historically is the Babylonian empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, um, has started taking over the world, basically. And uh, Israel was no exception. So he uh, starts taking over all of these, these countries, these uh, states, including Aram and Moab and Ammon and Edom. So if you ever see the prophets being like, woe to you, all of these places, it's because they were all helping Babylon attack them. <laughs> you also would say woe to them. So what happens is Babylon finally comes to Israel and takes over Israel. And um, basically burns the city to the ground, including the temple of God. This temple that they had worked so long and hard for, the place for Yahweh to dwell. They come, they burn it down. And what they start doing is they start deporting people. So the first thing they do is what, what, what always happens in moments like this, the rich get taken away first. So the rich are deported to Babylon first. Um, and then after a few years, the like middle class is deported to Babylon next, and then there's a third deportation as well. So these people over time get deported into Babylon, and it leaves the city in just absolute shambles. And uh, there's a tradition, you know, that says that Jeremiah uh, sat on a hill watching this city that he warned about um, burn to the ground, and he weeps over it, and he writes Lamentations. And the Hebrew title of the book of Lamentations is just the word how. How. That's like the Sufyan Christmas. You know what I mean? Like that deep, dark place of like, how did we get here? That's exile. That's the place that the prophets invite us into. So why would God do this? Why would God allow this? How could this happen? Those are the questions that come out of an event like exile, the kinds of Advent questions I think we're invited to ask. All this wilderness wandering, 
finally getting into the promised land. All the tabernacle instructions and building and carrying, all the temple building and caretaking, all the kings. And it's all gone. It's all burned to ash in the ground. We know what happened historically from the Bible and other ancient documents, but how do we know theologically what was happening at the time? How do we know how the people of God were understanding this event that was happening in their lives? Does anyone know? Who tells us? Prophets. The prophets, right? That's, that's every prophet you have is talking about this event and what it means and understanding it theologically. They're explaining to us what they think it means. Not just telling us historical events, but actually explaining what it means in the eyes of God. They answer the question, why does this happen? Why was Israel, God's chosen people, his cherished possession, the ones he promised to love with a steadfast, never-ending covenant love sent away from the two things he promised them, their land and their temple, his people, the ones he loved, why were they sent away? It's a really important question to ask. The prophet's whys fall into two main categories. The first is that Israel neglected their call to holiness and worship of Yahweh alone. Ready? Let's go look at some texts. Okay. We're going to look at several passages about this neglect of holiness. First, we're going to go to Jeremiah 16. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Strong language, yes? Right. Let's keep going. This is from Hosea chapter 13. And now they keep on sinning and make a cast image for themselves, idols of silver made according to their understanding, all of them the work of artisans, meaning humans made it. Sacrifice to these, they say. People are kissing calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. From Ezekiel. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense stands shall be broken, and I will throw down your slain in front of your idols. I will lay the corpses of the people of Israel in front of their idols, and I will scatter, scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, your towns shall be waste and your high places ruined so that your altars will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken and destroyed, your incense stands cut down and your works wiped out. This was serious business. And let me just tell you a little nugget of information behind all of that. It's not like if you decided to not be a Christian anymore and became a Muslim. That's not like the different worshiping that was going on. When people worshipped other gods, other gods demanded things like human sacrifice, child sacrifice, abominable things that the people of God, when they worshipped other gods, were bringing these acts into the temple of your God and my God. It was not okay. It wasn't that they were just acting a little bit impure. These were bad, bad things going on in the temple of God. That's why God is so serious about holiness and about how they were worshiping. Israel, over and over again for generations and generations, continued to neglect this God who saved them. They worshiped idols, and they sacrificed ungodly things. And God had had enough of it. That's what the prophets tell us. 
It led to this point. That's one side of the coin of why the prophets tell us that Israel went into exile. There is another, equally important, and that is justice. That they were not enacting the justice commanded of them by God in the Torah. And if this were a class, we would now go to the Torah (laughs) and read those. But I've got like 10 minutes or something. So we're not going to do that. But we are going to read some of these texts that you will find within the prophets. Okay? I'm going to do a little bit more. And then we're going to think more about what exile means for us. So let's look at some of these laws, these things about justice. We see in Isaiah 1. Isaiah says, Your silver has become dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not defend the orphan, and the widow's cause does not come before them. Next from Amos chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample on the head of the poor into into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. Father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. We have holiness and justice in this one text. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of God, they drink wine bought with fines they imposed. This is like economic justice at its core, guys. There was a lot of injustice happening in Israel at the time. Uh, One interesting thing in particular that I want to point out, um, because it comes up over and over again, not this word in particular. This is a word that we've um, uh, named over the years as, um, you know, people who study the text. Um, But references to an economic injustice called latifungalization. Say it with me. (laughs) Latifungalization. It's a good word, isn't it? You can impress your family in a few weeks. Um, This is not a word, like I said, you'll see in the Bible, um, but we use it to describe the economic situation that was happening. So this is generally defined as the process of land accumulation at the hands of a few wealthy elite to the deprivation of the poor. Sound familiar? So here's a little bit more information on that. Under the reign of King Hezekiah, who was actually the king uh, while the prophet Micah, who we're reading from today, uh, he was the king while Micah was, um, was a prophet. This is what HarperCollins tells us. Judah experienced an economic revolution under this king, Hezekiah. Wealth accumulated due to Hezekiah's shrewd political alliances, and that wealth was invested directly into the land, which led to the growth of vast estates and the collapse of small holdings. Wealthy landowners thrived at the expense of small peasant farmers. The shift from a bartering economy to a monetary mercantile economy increased the gap between the rich and the poor. So this starts happening, and these prophets are witnessing this, and the prophets are holding on to the reality that God gave um, equal to the people of God when they came into the promised land, and this gap starts forming, and these prophets are saying, oh, this is exactly actually what God was trying to prevent when he gave us the laws, (laughs) was this separation of rich from poor, was selling the needy for a pair of sandals, right? So these prophets start telling us about all this injustice and how it will not, um, God will not allow it. We even see it in the prophet we're studying today in Micah chapter 2. Here's what Micah says. This is maybe my favorite one. It's very poetic and dark. Woe to those who devise wickedness and evil deeds on their beds. 
When morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress householder and house, people and their inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am now devising against this family an evil from which you cannot remove your necks. He's talking about exile. And you shall not walk arrogantly, for it will be an, an evil time. The people of God had abandoned their God-commissioned life of holiness and justice, and for this reason they were sent into exile. This is what the prophets tell us. So what does this story mean for us? Now that we're all in this like dark place, right? You're like, wow, this is not where I wanted to go today. It's okay. There's good news in it. What does this biblical story mean for us? As already and not yet people, what does it mean for us to live in exile? The first thing that I think is incredibly important and the prophets are warning us and telling us to do is to realize the state of this world that we live in, that it is sinful. We err when we see scriptures about sin as sentimentality and don't take them seriously. Our culture would have us believe that sin is a sort of antiquated term that's outdated and at worst uh, oppressive. Our sin matters. And not because God is a perfectionistic taskmaster, but because God has a perspective on the toll of our actions that we can't ever fully see. There are no private sins. We cannot serve two masters. What we cultivate in our lives grows. Those are seeds that grow into fruit, good and bad, in the outside of our lives, the way that we relate to people, the way that we live. We can't just have like private sins within us. Sin matters, worship matters, confession matters, repentance matters. And here's the thing that's really good news, is we actually get to be released from anger and frustration toward God about the state of this world when we can admit, in the words of the great prophets, jars of clay, we are the only ones to blame for this. I actually have it tattooed on my wrist. It's one of my first ones. You know why? Not because it's like self-deprecation, but because if I'm the one to blame for this, then God isn't. Do you know how liberating that is? If my sin has brought the world to where it is, then I can release God from the blame for that and like rest and relax in his arms as the one who is going to be faithful through it all, who is going to rescue. I don't have to point the finger at him anymore. I can point the finger at me. And then you know what God does when I point the finger at me? He like removes it, points it towards Jesus and Jesus takes it all on himself. It's good news to say this world is sinful. It's good news to say I'm sinful because God is so much more faithful than me. And Jesus did something about the fact that I am sinful. The story's been written and told. The book's been closed on me and my sin. Sin brought us to where we are. He is sovereign and sin doesn't get the last word. So we can look at our sin with open eyes and be okay. Admit that it's real. We also err, friends, when we see scriptures about justice as sentimentality and don't take them seriously. 
I am self-righteous, so I will always see texts of sin as very, very real. (laughs) I will admit, however, I saw texts about justice as sentimentality for a really long time. When we as exiled people prepare the way of the Lord, we do everything we can with our life, with what we've been given to even out the scales. It doesn't mean you have to become a politician or a lobbyist. You can also do those things. Those are great things. Um, It means you need to do what you can with what you have, even if it's really small. It may be your neighbor who's lived in her house for 30 years and her property taxes are getting too high for her to stay. Maybe you live next to her because it's your job to help her figure out how to stay in her house. That's exactly what the Old Testament prophets are talking about. It might mean taking up the mantle of fighting for equality for women in your workplace, even if you get labeled a horrible feminist, right? And if people are tired of hearing you talk about it, it may be the thing that you're meant to fight for. It might mean learning to listen to people who think differently than you, even even if they say it in a way that you feel like isn't right, even if it sounds wrong to your ears then maybe you can open yourself up and say, maybe there's something they're telling me that I need to listen to. And it most certainly means taking up the cause of anti-racism and listening to voices of our black brothers and sisters and people of color and believing them, even if we can't see it, when they say the scales still aren't even. That Old Testament cry of the people of God to their God, the scales aren't even God. That's a cry God hears. The Old Testament tells us over and over again, we have to listen to that cry. So what does all this look like? Is there a biblical imperative to all of this? In Micah chapter 6, he gives us this imperative with really simple terms for all of us to hold on to. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, a calf, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. People of holiness people of justice, people of love. That's what it means to be exiled people. That's what it means to prepare the way of the Lord. To live as faithful exiles, we ask the question, is it just? Is it kind? Is it holy? Jesus showed us this with his life in a way that there was something about this old world, this old way of being given laws that we just couldn't see. Like our eyes couldn't see it until someone came in the flesh and showed us what it looked like to live it out day to day. That holiness plus justice equals love. That God with us put on flesh and blood in perfect holiness and perfect justice and showed us what it meant to be lived out in human existence. That it meant love, a redeeming kind of love, not a sentimental love. It meant holiness that includes rather than excludes. It meant justice that walks hand in hand with mercy. We could never have gotten it if we didn't see it lived out in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
So in Advent, we remember that we are exiles, that we live in a world that's full of sin and its consequences everywhere we look, especially in the church. We live in a world where justice seems to slip further and further from the grasp of those who need it most. We recognize that we are living in Babylon. We look all around us. We're not where we're meant to be. Because then we can truly feel the hope of what Micah told us in our text today. This is like an Advent chorus theme. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall be rescued. What should be our final judgment is the place where we get to be rescued. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall be rescued. And it's here in the midst of all of this mess that the rescuer will come, that he did come once and will come again, the already and the not yet. What color is our candle today? What is it? It's pink. It's pink. It's the joy candle. Did you know that? Each candle has like a little theme. And our candle theme this week is joy. And the reason they give us a pink candle, which aesthetically bothers me, just if you wanted to know, is because it's never that dark with Jesus. The pink candle is the reminder that even in the worst things, in the worst times, the news is good. And Jesus will come. So we get this pink candle to remind us that that's true. So I think the candle, this pink candle this week, is the special invitation to this tension, to this already not yet light and dark sorrow and joy of this season. We get invited to hold that tension, especially today and this week. The joy candle reminds us that it is all going to be okay no matter how dark it may seem, even though you look around and you think, man, we're still in Babylon. And again, not sentimentally, but because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen? Amen.